I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. This is Strategic Farming Field Notes. Uh, today's uh, topic will be on soybean and corn insects, action thresholds and status, and the big question, are we done for the year? Uh, these sessions are brought to you by the University of Minnesota Extension and generous support from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, along with the Corn Growers uh, Research and Promotion Council. Uh, I'm Dave Nikolai, along with Anthony Hansen, the Regional Extension uh, Educators in Crops. Uh, we are serving as moderators this morning. Uh, we welcome our panelists this morning, uh, Bruce Potter, Integrated Pest Management Specialist uh, from the University of Minnesota, located at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center at Lamberton, Minnesota, and also uh, Dr. Bob Cook, who's Extension Soybean Entomologist from the University of Minnesota. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to my uh, co-host, uh, Integrated Pest Management uh, Specialty, uh, Anthony Hansen, uh, coming into us from Western Minnesota, uh, someplace out there in that Morris area. So Anthony, did you get a little bit of rain over the weekend or this past week or not? Yeah, Dave, actually, uh, so Bruton area out here, kind of Alexander Wilmer area, we got about two inches of rain just yesterday, um, but kind of a narrow band. So we got really lucky where we are, plenty of other dry areas in the region too. So uh, uh, pretty variable depending on how that rain turned out for people. Well, that's certainly the case. I, I know that Russell mentioned some places in, in southwestern Minnesota didn't get the rain. And certainly I'm in eastern Minnesota, more towards the uh, metro area here in, in Dakota County. And we've been missed consistently uh, throughout the uh, this summer here. So we're, we're way behind average. So uh, bottom line, a lot of variability, I, I guess, so, you know, uh, with that and uh, uh, here to help us with some of this variability. Uh, uh, Bob, a little bit on, uh, from your standpoint, uh, everybody keeps asking me, where are these soybean aphids? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, you know, first off, I guess you mentioned, you know, are we done with insects for the year? And I'd say certainly not in soybean. I think we're just getting to the point where things could start getting interesting. And if an entomologist is saying that, like Ken Osley always used to say, you know, you might wanna be concerned. Um, the soybean aphids, they're definitely out there. I think this variability in weather and plant growth stages is leading to variability across the state in aphid populations. Um, there are some areas where aphid numbers are increasing. Um, Southeast Minnesota, uh, Central Minnesota got a report yesterday. Um, I think it was kind of from Clara City up to maybe Sox Center. And then I think Bruce, you've been seeing aphids increasing in Southwest Minnesota, but you know, a lot of this will depend on weather, I think for aphids and spider mites, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we'll kind of determine what our, what our main issues will be. Yeah, Bruce, what are you seeing in uh, Southwestern Minnesota in terms of uh, soybean aphid out there? I know like Bob mentioned where I'm kind of central Minnesota, West Central, uh, really variable. Um, in my cases, I've barely seen a soybean aphid yet this year, whereas you know, we go a little bit further south or east. And like Bob mentioned, there are a few pockets where people are finding aphids. 
Well, I think it's the same here. It's real variable. Uh, if you get into these areas that traditionally have uh, some aphid populations early, uh, we're, we're seeing some buildup. Um, uh, I think there's probably a few fields that have some recommendations put out on them yet, but they're pretty scattered. They're the small fields, uh, fields with a lot of buckthorn around them. At the Research and Outreach Center, we've got a area set up for insecticide trials. We've been watching that. And as of yesterday, that's now 100% uh, of the plants have aphids. Uh, those populations are, are still fairly low. We're averaging about 15 per plant. But, you know, when I'm looking at a field for aphids, you know, my first cue is as those percent plants infested go up, uh, once you start getting over 50%, and certainly when you're in 100%, you really got to start paying attention because there's no place else for them to go. There's no new plants to colonize. And those populations can build up uh, pretty rapidly. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. We don't have any rain here at Lamberton and that's gonna maybe uh, encourage some of those populations to leave if we get the beans under moisture stress and may open some things up for spider mites as Bob was saying. Um, you know, get in, you, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say next week is Farm Fest, Bruce, of course. And, and of course, always time with Farm Fest, it's gonna get warmer and it looks like it is next week. Um, you know, we're talking 80s into the, into the 90s. What do both of you think about uh, the temperature effect, not only on, on soybean aphids, uh, do we have to be concerned about spider mites at some point, or are we still too far away from that in a, in a dry situation? Well, I think for soybean aphids, I mean, there's research out there that was done in a grill chamber that showed that the aphids don't perform well under higher temperatures, you know, up into the, you know, mid nineties and higher. Um, but you got to remember that that work was done under constant temperatures, 24 hours a day at those high temperatures. <clears throat> and in a soybean field, you got the canopy of the beans mitigating that temperature a little bit. You've got that fluctuation from day to night, where even though your high temperatures in the day might be in kind of a stressful zone for the aphids, you know, the other part of the day might be closer to the sweet spot where they can still be reproducing. So just because we run into a stretch of hot weather, do not count the aphids out. Bob, that was kind of a follow-up I was thinking about too, especially considering what weather we might be having going forward. You know, in some of these fields where people have barely seen an aphid, you might have just a couple on the top leaves right now. Um, is there, you know, still definitely a potential for issues to pop up in those fields where we can't uh, bank too much on predicting what's going to happen quite yet based on current counts? Yeah, I think there's still concern. You know, these aphids are very mobile. They develop that wing form and they can fly around to different fields, um, could get a colonize, uh, an event like that happening. And previously uninfested fields could get colonized. And if there aren't many natural enemies there or anything, and if temperatures get into that sweet spot for the aphids, their numbers can increase very fast. Say, Bruce, what are some tips for if you're going to, if a grower or, or ag professional is going to go out scouting these warmer temperatures, where in the canopy should they start to look for for aphids to get a, a better assessment uh, going forward and then think of natural enemies, et cetera? Well, I think, I think those aphids are gonna be wanting to be on that new growth yet, as long as those plants are growing vegetatively, uh, they can move to the underside of the leaves to get protected. And that's usually where you find them anyhow. Um, but the other thing that's gonna happen is as these plants start grow, uh, reducing vegetative growth and, and you get to the later, the re later reproductive stages, uh, you're going to start to see those aphids move further down in the canopy. You'll see them more on the stems. You'll see them more around the pods. 
and then real late uh, as those plants get back and in, get into, get into uh, the R6 stage or that full pod stage, uh, then you'll start to see them more towards the bottom of the plant. So right now it's probably, as these beans are in R3, uh, you're prob it's probably pretty easy scouting. A lot of those are gonna be at the top of the plant, um, but they're gonna start moving down in that canopy as the season progresses. Any uh, comments on action thresholds and, uh, and product choice or things to think about here for either one of you? Well, I think, again, just to reiterate, with all this variability across the state, we want to make sure we are scouting and not just assume we've got issues of getting in the field. Estimating numbers of aphids on plants, we still recommend the 250 aphids per plant as a threshold and um, the majority of the plants infested and ideally with that population increasing, right? And to know if the population is increasing, we need to be scouting over time. Um, as for management options or insecticide options, remember that chlorpyrifos or chlorpyrifos containing products, you know, so think of things like Lorsban, um, what's the fairly common mixture, cobalt, I think. Um, we can no longer use those due to that EPA action where they revoke the tolerances. So if you have leftover stock of those chemicals, remember you can't use those. Um, but we do have other products. Um, well, before getting into those, and there's also resistance to the pyrethroids in many soybean aphid populations. So we've documented over several years now resistance to bifenthrin and lambda cyhalothrin. And we suspect that there could very likely be cross resistance to some of the other pyrethroids. So, you know, with, with those two items, the regulation and the resistance, it's really already reducing the size of our chemical toolbox for this pest. But we do have some newer products um, like Transform, Safina, and Sivanto. Our research suggests that they're effective against aphids and they have the added benefit of being a little less toxic to some of the natural enemies. So you can ideally kill off the aphids and leave the lady beetles and other predatory insects out in that field. Um, and then there are still some of the mixtures too that at least my data has been suggesting are still pretty effective. Bruce, uh, I'd be curious to hear from you, but you know, some of the mixtures where it's a pyrethroid and uh, neonicotinoid, um, those still seem to be holding up for the most part. So here's a question thinking about, you know, if people are going out and applying, uh, some of these chemistries work a little differently, either Bob or Bruce. Uh, what are you looking at for efficacy afterwards? I know um, one of these can definitely have different effects on the aphids where you might not see um what looks like you know, dead aphids right away at least that yeah that'd be safina it, it the feeding stops right away but they hang on for a few days while they're starving to death so if you like torturing aphids that's a product you might want to select um it, but there's you know so it, there's we've got a pretty good range of options for soybean aphids right now um even it's in spite of the lack of lorsban uh, and chlorpyrifos being gone I think one of the concerns is, you know, people need to be proactive and, and look at insecticide availability, just like everything else. Some of these products are in short supply in different areas. So, um, you know, you don't want to be caught uh, unawares. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's going to happen right now is, is we're moving into that period as this vegetative growth stops. We're going to see a lot of dispersal of aphids. 
Um, they tend to move around uh, around Farm Fest time, Sturgis uh, motorcycle rally. That's kind of the cue for when we see a lot of that movement uh, between fields happening. And I know there's some people that have tried to get away with the, the cheap and easy way and have mixed an insecticide in with their fungicide or their herbicide. And those are the fields that people better keep an eye on uh, because uh, depending on what product they've used, they may have used a product that the aphids are, are no longer susceptible to, and they may have knocked out all the beneficials in those fields. So it's some, those fields are the ones that, that need a special, are gonna need a special watch uh, later on in the season, unless you're up fishing and don't care, and then, then it doesn't matter. Maybe we should move on to talk a little bit about some other soybean insects, um, and including gall mage, look at Bruce, but maybe uh, Bob, you had a, curious uh, sample I know we talked about a little bit earlier but there, there are a lot of things that can happen out in that soybean field I mean just even beyond aphids at this point in time. Yeah so last year we documented for the first time a tiny leaf mining moth whose caterpillar um, mines in the leaves of a couple native plants and last year we found it feeding on soybean. Uh, a colleague of mine also found it in Quebec I was kind of hopeful that it was just going to be some kind of a novelty thing where we'd maybe see it here and there, never at any uh, damaging levels. But I went out and visited a field earlier this week in Sibley County, so kind of near the Minnesota River, and it was hit pretty hard, you know, especially along the edge of that field near wooded areas. Um, a pretty, fairly high percentage of the leaf area was affected by these leaf mines. Uh, we know very little about it. You know, it was just feeding on these two kind of obscure native plants previously. So nobody's ever studied it all that much. Last year was the first time we saw it on soybean. Um, so kind of like soybean gall midge, we're playing catch up here, trying to figure out, you know, about its biology, its pest potential, things like that. But I think with this one, you know, as it's mining in the leaves, it leaves a uh, kind of white papery or blister-like mine on the underside of the leaf. And then as the larvae get bigger, they start feeding on more and more of the leaf tissue and that leaf tissue eventually dies out. So I, I think we'll end up managing it as, you know, estimating defoliation or percent of leaf area affected like we do with some of the defoliating insects. Um, in this particular field, the majority of the field was had a very low level infestation, but there was at least one edge that was hit pretty hard. So, so to look out for, we did, post a crop news article a couple weeks ago about it. That'll have some pictures. Okay, thank you. But a little bit of time here for both Bruce and Anthony, um, your Western areas. Can you give us a quick update on gall midge uh, in soybeans? Uh, Bruce, you're engaged in a significant you know, regional um, monitoring situation. Kind of where, where are we at now at, at this point in time in the year? Well, we've got, uh, right now we've got uh, uh, this, the first generation of flies being produced on soybeans. Um, that uh, the overwintering generation that came off of last year's uh, soybean ground uh, into this year's soybean, that uh, for the most part, those populations have been fairly low. Uh, there's some edge infestations, but we've uh, compared to some of these higher years, 2018, 2019, 2020, um, the, the crop injury is not nearly as severe as it has been. That may change because we're catching an awful lot of adults now. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. One thing we've learned is it doesn't seem that uh, um, 
you know, that dry, hot, dry weather keeps the adults from, from emerging. So uh, as, as these eggs uh, are laid and larvae emerge, it's gonna be easier to find gall midge infested fields. So as people are out looking, uh, look on those edges adjacent to last year's soybeans and look for, look for the crop injury. Uh, we're seeing a lot of soybean root diseases that's causing wilting and some hail uh, sandblasting injury that's causing some brittle stems. So make sure you're peeling that outer layer, that stem back and finding the larvae uh, before you blame it on salt, on gall midge when it's actually, a, actually another problem. So what would be the crop injury symptoms? And Anthony, have you seen anything uh, a little bit farther north here or not? Yeah, I'm kind of on the northern end where Bruce, I think you said uh, Candyline County last year, you uh, had a find out there, decent infestation out there. Um, so far this year, I haven't seen anything until I went down to southwestern Minnesota to see some of Bruce's sites down there. So, so far, mm -hmm. quiet up here, but still early in the season, like you mentioned too. So Bruce, uh, how about you? Uh, well, it's it's pretty, we can find them, um, but it's not, it's, you know, usually right now in July, in the first part of August is when, when it, we're, have the most success of picking up new fields. We'll be heading east and, and north uh, trying to look at some new counties uh, as well. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's uh, it, Hopefully these populations in Minnesota stay fairly low. Is the first thing you're going to see a debilitated plant if from the edge of the road uh, in terms of driving down? What's your first uh, sign? Well, you're going to have to actually, if, if the infestation is light, Dave, you're actually going to have to get out of your vehicle. I oh. know that's hard when it's hot. And yeah, humid, it is. But, but it's just the way it is. And, you know, if you, some of these infested plants, if they're infested early, they're stunted and they're beneath the canopy. So they're wilted and, and brittle, but they're underneath the canopy. So you don't notice them anymore. The surrounding plants have, have, uh, have uh, covered them up. Uh, but if you look at what you're going to start to see now is always at the base of that plant. And you may have to, to actually look for it is that discoloration right near the ground level. Um, and usually towards the, at the edge of that uh, affected area, there'll be a real dark, almost black uh, border between the green tissue and the healthy tissue. Look at those plants. Uh, sometimes they're brittle, not always if the infestation is pretty light, sometimes they're wilted. Again, that's when those uh, number of larvae per stem get up. But always peel that that outer layer back and, and see if there's larvae underneath it. We've been uh, listing a couple of URLs on the bot in your screen in terms of previous publications. But maybe just uh, Bruce and Bob, are there? Or you know, you mentioned maybe just review. What are some plans for crop news for some upcoming articles that'll be timely? Yeah. So Bruce and I are working on one. Uh, recapping soybean aphid and spider mite scouting um, thresholds and insecticide or miticide options. I'm working with uh, Teresa Syra from the MDA to put one together on chlorpyrifos and reminding folks that we shouldn't use it even if we have leftover product and uh, hopefully some updates from the MDA on disposal. So we got a couple questions coming in here. Uh, I'll, I'll put them together in this case. Uh, are we seeing anything for either grasshoppers or thistle caterpillars this year? Grasshoppers, yes. Thistle caterpillars, not so much, at least not in, in my areas, the stuff I've looked at. Um, right. You know, that, 
almost all the grasshoppers that I've seen in Southwest Minnesota are red-legged. And so they're going to hang, you know, particularly around alfalfa fields. They're, uh, they like to lay eggs in that, in that alfalfa ground. There's some differentials as well, um, but those are the two main species. I think yeah. caterpillars in general are really low. I haven't seen much green clover worm either. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that, Bob. I haven't seen much either. And like uh, Bruce mentioned, uh, kind of Stearns County area, a lot of alfalfa out there. That's where I'm seeing most of the grasshoppers too. And you get into the soybeans, you'll see a little bit of feeding damage sometimes, but yeah, nothing that's anywhere near threshold and not very high numbers out there mm -hmm. yet. But um, keep an eye out for things like pod clipping if you do get later in the season and you get high numbers out there, but that remains to be seen if we get to that point for uh, soybean at least. Any other uh, soybean insect concerns before we kind of jump over to corn here a little bit? Well, I think the last one to cover is uh, spider mites a little okay. bit. And, uh, sure. What we uh, might be expecting if we get to another hot, dry August like we tend to get, what can be happening there? Um, You know, I think the situation's kind of prime for spider mites in some areas, uh, you know, with the, the dry weather. Um, the spider mites like the heat and, and the dry weather. You know, Bruce last week was chatting with me about it and, you know, made some comments about, you know, maybe spider mite numbers going into this year might have been a little bit lower last year because of some disease outbreaks, knocking the mite populations down, but they can reproduce quite rapidly. So it's, it's another thing to keep an eye on especially in areas that stay hot and dry. <clears throat> I have a note here from our uh, meteorologist to the south here, Dennis Toddy at, out of USDA in um, Ames. This is hot and dry, I guess, coming in here to, uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, predictions in August, uh, especially hot, um, seems quite likely. I know the Pacific Northwest forecast this morning was for extremely uh, hot temperatures out there and triple digits. So um, uh, with that, just, as we talk about spider mites, um, and Bruce, you've talked about this before, what, you know, kind of scouting is difficult, but pulling the trigger economically is even more so, isn't it? Well, actually, spider mite scouting is relatively, uh, the initial stages are relatively simple because uh, you're probably not going to want to treat any field unless you can actually see some sort of damage uh, on the edge of the field. Um, what you're trying to do with spider mites is protect the upper canopy. Um, so you're going to see some areas on the edge of the field with uh, particularly with some uh, stippling um, and, and, you know, some small colonies on the upper leaves, but you don't want to get to the point where you're starting to lose that upper leaf area because it's not replaceable. Uh, sometimes guys, especially in these bigger fields, can get by with an edge treatment, but you really have to scout hard and make sure you don't have infestation pockets further out in the field, uh, because otherwise you, the, you, the, the, the center of the field just blows up and then the edges get reinfested uh, as well. So, um, Kind of last word, are there some insecticides, though, to stay away from in a spider mite situation here for both Bob and Bruce? Anything we need to be aware of? Most of the perithroids, except by fenthrin. Yeah. And stay away from the chlorpyrifos that might be sitting on your shelf. Okay. How about the uh, miticides? There are a few other options we have for <clears throat> spider mites that we don't have for, say, soybean aphid. Most of the others are pretty similar, but uh, how well do those work or what cautions do we have about 
when or kind of what life stages they're targeting. Bruce, do you want to take that? I think you've got more experience maybe with those mitocides. I, I actually haven't had it. Well, yet. yeah, so, so some of these, uh, like bifenthrin, for example, doesn't control eggs. So um, you're taking out the immatures and the adults. Um, and, and you know, if, you're, if you don't have enough residual there, you can have egg hatch and get reinfested. Um, some of the products like Zeal work primarily on eggs and the very small uh, immatures. Uh, those um, have some, th those struggle if you're trying to put them on a full-blown infestation um, because you've still got the adults and the adults are still laying eggs, that sort of thing. Um, the products we've got are dimethoate yet, uh, for, particularly if you're just going after mites, dimethoate, agrimec, um, bifenthrin, but, the, but you got to keep the rate up. And that's the other thing. There's some premixes with bifenthrin in them that have mites on the label, but you got to be really careful of what rate of bifenthrin you've got in there because a lot of them have a reduced rate and it's, you know, you might be on the edge for mite control. Maybe we should jump over to corn a little bit, Bruce, here. And um, we're in the end of July. Um, comments about how the rootworm is looking from the standpoint and then also sticky traps, uh, digging roots, et cetera. What are some things that you could... Uh, really want to mention here for uh, our participants? Yeah, over the next few weeks, it's time to scout uh, beetles. If you've got an early silking field right now, uh, you might want to, um, especially if you're in an area with a lot of northerns, things like sweet corn or, or real early ta uh, silking uh, field corn, you might keep an eye on silk clipping. That's pretty rare that that's a problem. But we're into that time now where we're making decisions for next year's corn crop. Uh, so if you're, uh, we've got quite a few cooperators in the sticky trap program, but if you're running sticky traps or even doing, uh, doing, uh, whole uh, beetle counts on plants, now is the time to do it. You don't want to go out there too early, make too many decisions early because they're males. And what we really care about is the females that are laying eggs. Um, we've got pretty good populations. The winter didn't do very much, uh, to the, uh, Western beet, corn worm beetle eggs, unfortunately, uh, pretty significant damage at Lamberton again, and I'm getting some reports of, of uh, field struggling. They may look fine right now, at least as long as there's enough moisture, uh, if you don't have the wind, but we've got some plants that look pretty good in our research plots at Lamberton that you can pull out of the ground pretty easily with one hand. So, um, and as we, as we get short on rain, now that's going to get worse. Um, so basically, uh, start scouting for beetles. And, and the other thing right now, we are picking up some Western bean cutworm in the light traps, which is pretty unusual for us, not big numbers, but if you're out there, maybe kind of look at the upper leaf surface, uh, of some of these corn plants and, and see if you can see some eggs, uh, University of Nebraska has probably got the best extension information on, on that insect. If you're going to be looking at corn, uh, you want to spend some time on obviously corn on corn or any particular trait that comes to mind here as to uh, where to put your energy. Uh, as far as as far as rootworms, yeah, scouting, yeah. And, and well, observing. I mean, I mean, uh, if you're in continuous corn, um, uh, there's populations of western corn rootworm out there, and even some of north. We're starting to see some with northerns, where we're resistant to multiple traits in the pyramids. Uh, 
just, you know, the, the non-BT hybrids, of course, in a, a continuous corn situation are at particular risk right now. But there's, uh, we've seen a lot of issues with SmartStack and Chrome and, and the Duracade hybrids out there as well. Um, it's just a matter of, of what level of resistance is in that local population and what your overall uh, rootworm population is as far as what the damage is going to be. That's really why you're scouting, Dave, is to find out uh, what those beetle populations are in a particular field and then what that means for, for uh, corn down the road. You know, if we're going to get this hot and dry, I guess, Bruce, would you, wouldn't always assume that everything that you see is uh, debilitating the corn plants if you have a reduced root system and corn rootworm and interaction if we get in these hot, dry conditions as uh, uh, Dennis was talking about in, into the month of uh, August? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because if, if you've got a reduced root system and you're having an issue taking up moisture and nutrients for that matter, but if you're having a, an impaired root system, the effect of a certain amount of root pruning uh, is magnified under drought, under drought stress. So your, your uh, possibility of yield, yield loss goes up with dry weather, definitely. So, so take Bruce, a, take last a question for you. Um, yeah, in this case, you mentioned continu continuous corn. Is that still the best tool we can use across the board for trying to keep our rotations going to avoid continuous corn? if a grower can at least. Uh, some livestock growers might not be the easiest to do, but uh, what effects do you still see from uh, avoiding those and going with more, at least a corn soybean rotation? Or well, I mean, if, more? Yeah, if, Anthony, if you've, got, if you've got a rootworm problem in a field and you've already got traits, a, trait, a, a pyramided hybrid out there, really the, the smart thing or the only effective thing you can do right now is to rotate out of corn. And if you have more than a half a node gone on a pyramid, uh, you need to report that. And, and technically, you're not supposed to plant uh, corn back in, or a BT back into that field. The problem we've got, in addition to westerns right now, is we're seeing northern corn rootworm populations go up. And I'm looking at a field uh, this week that's got, in, in, along the Iowa border, that's got uh, quite a few northern corn rootworm in it. And, and it's, a, it's a pyramided field. So, um, the bad news is extended diapause can go along with uh, BT resistance. So that uh, comments we talk sometimes every year a little bit about if there is a volunteer corn situation in soybeans here and you, you alluded to extended diapause, I mean, any comments there, Bruce? Uh, certainly those are, are suspect things as well. Well, definitely if you've got volunteer corn out there and you kill it late, if it, if it was still alive uh, a few weeks ago, um, the, the rootworms larvae on those roots probably could, uh, could, could, could have survived and uh, make it to adulthood. Uh, the other thing that happens with volunteer corn now is it tends to silk later and it pulls beetles into that field. So it's bad out there. In addition to the possibility of, of reducing soybean yields where that volunteer corn is heavy, um, it's, got, it's got some ramifications for rootworm and they're not good. And certainly, if you've been planting some of the traded corn in the past, and we think about some of these herbicides, the FOPs and the DIMS, some are going to be better than others. Work, work with your crop consultant or your supplier. Um, otherwise, you're going to be you know, putting the product out there from a herbicidal standpoint that isn't going to do any good. But at this point, I think we're to the point where we're going to have to uh, do some hand you know, labor out there, uh, do what you can to get the volunteer corn out of that uh, situation, particularly from going to, going to know, seed as well. 
an odd plant here and there isn't going to make a difference, but it's when you get these, when you get these patches and, and uh, you know, relatively high populations in areas of the fields, that's where you can have some issues down the road. I think that gets us to about time here. So uh, Bruce and Bob, thank you for joining us yeah. today. I think that takes care of all the questions we've got today too, it looks like. So Dave, I'll hand it off to you. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Anthony. Uh, we want to thank everybody for attending here today. And we thank our panelists, uh, both uh, Bruce and Bob. We have a very short four question survey uh, that, you, that you can participate in and you conclude the uh, session today. Again, we want to thank our sponsors, Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, along with the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council and the University of Minnesota Extension. Uh, you can tune in uh, next week. Uh, we will be on the air, even though it will be Farm Fest. We'll have some other uh, moderators, and that'll be again on August uh, 3rd, I believe, Anthony. Is that correct? And it'll be a Wednesday, same time at uh, eight o'clock and we'll have an updated crops program. Uh, we will continue with that uh, situation. So thank you, Anthony. If you don't have anything else, we'll conclude. And, and again, thank our, uh, our panelists and for participating. And we have recorded this as a podcast and uh, for future delivery as well as a uh, re recording of the actual session itself. So thank you again for attending. I appreciate that. And we're signing off from here at the University of Minnesota Extension. Thanks for having me. Happy scouting. Thank you, everyone.